Christmas. You know, I don't know if you heard that the Farmer's Almanac is calling for like a really serious winter. You've heard this? So far, we haven't gotten that. It's been rainy this Christmas, not let it, not so much snow. It's rainy out there. I feel like it's raining every Sunday. What's the deal with that? Um, anybody want a white Christmas this year? I mean, we are due, are we not due? I mean, the Parnells have been here from Alabama now. This is going to be like our, at least their second Christmas here. And they haven't got to see what the Northeast can really bring. So let's, let's pray for a little bit of snow. A little bit of snow, not too much. All right, hey, we are going to be in John chapter 1. By the way, I'm Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if I'm a new face to you, uh, we want to welcome you. I'd love to say hello to you after the service. Uh, I'll be out in the lobby hanging out, so please come and say hello. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, uh, John is in the New Testament. So go like uh, three quarters of the way over and go past Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the fourth gospel. And you can grab a, a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, grab that one. Take it as a gift. Uh, that's our gift for you. Just take it home. Uh, read it. All right. That'll be my only ask. Read it. And we'd love to be able to join you in that journey of discovering uh, the truths that come out of the Scripture, what we believe uh, gives us uh, a life worth living. And so we're going to be talking about all of that today coming out of John chapter 1. Uh, before we really dig into the word here, just want to uh, give you a quick note. I sent out to you, I think about a week ago, uh, a note in a letter in the mail. It's a year-end letter, um, really just a way of saying Merry Christmas to you. Um, I hope it encourages you with the things that God is doing here in our church. There's so much to be thankful for and be grateful for as we come to close this year. I also talked about in that letter, uh, just a reminder about year-end giving. Uh, some of you will, will be giving uh, to the Lord this Christmas. I want to encourage you to consider what generosity the Lord looks like here at Brandywine at your church home, if this is indeed your church home. Um, each year, our fiscal year ends at the end of August, uh, but the year end in, in December, we usually budget for a significant giving month because traditionally that has happened. So I just ask that you would pray about that. Um, consider giving here um, in, in a generous way. And uh, you can give, you're gonna give by snail mail. Just remember to postmark that. Um, and we wanna be able to receive that in order to make a charitable donation. We wanna receive that by December 31st. Of course, you can always give online as well as in the boxes in the back. So thanks for your giving. Uh, thanks for your continued generosity. I'm gonna say a word of prayer as we dig into the word today. Father, we thank you. You are a God who gives generously, generously to all who need. And so, Lord, as you have been generous to us in so many ways, not just the lives that we have, our family, maybe our, our job, our, our career, but, Lord, you have given of your Savior, of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God to us. That's what we remember this Christmas season, the gift of the Savior. So may we be generous in a, in a way that pleases you, Lord. Continue to sustain your work here, uh, Father. Um, continue to, to provide for us, and may uh, you prove yourself to be faithful as you have done time and time again. As we open your word, may we discover new, um, new life, new truth here this morning from the Gospel of John. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are walking slowly through this incredible prologue to the Gospel of John. 
uh, in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. It's sort of the summary of the person and work of Jesus Christ that John will go on to describe throughout his gospel. And we looked at week one of this series. Uh, we saw in verses 1 to 3 that Jesus is the word, the Greek word logos, which was the divine reason, the divine creator for everything that exists. Week two in this series, we looked at verses 4 to 11, the look at Jesus as the light, the light that was shining in the darkness, the darkness of our moral position, our, our sin, but also the light of truth into the darkness of ignorance. Um, and so Jesus came to be the light, and he calls us to step into the light and receive that light. Today we're going to be looking just at two verses, verses 12 and, and, and 13, um, here in the text. I'm going to read it to you, so just listen. I'm going to read starting in verse 11 for some context. It says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This will be the text we're going to focus on today. You know, on Saturday, Shannon and I were hanging out with some other uh, folks from, from church who also grew up in the 90s, um, who also grew up in kind of Christian circles like, uh, like my wife and I did. And we were sort of reminiscing about, I don't know how we got on the subject, of the corny 90s uh, Christian t-shirts. Do you remember some of what I'm talking about? I'll show you a picture. Let me show you a couple of these. So like this one, may your light shine for Jesus. Super cringy. Or this one, uh, instead of Reese's Jesus, yeah, or this one, uh, this one. I used to see this one all the time working out, the Lord's Gym instead of Gold's Gym. It's like, uh, like, a, like a juiced up Jesus bench pressing uh, the, the cross. Um, and then this one, this one was my favorite, um, a breadcrumb and fish. You guys remember that instead of Abercrombie and fish? Just so cringy. I'm pretty sure Pastor Matthew still has all these hanging in his closet somewhere <laughs> up there. I've got the mic, so, you know, what can you do? Um, you know, there's quite a bit. We got to laugh at ourselves as Christians. Uh, you're part of, you grew up in, in the church. You, you sometimes need to laugh. We, we, can be, we can be kind of a corny bunch sometimes. We got like all these little insider things that we like to say. And if you didn't grow up in the church and you, you kind of come into church world and you hear some of the things that people say, or you're like, these people are some weird people. I don't really know what they're talking about sometimes. They use these like this Christianese language that I don't always understand. You know, like phrases um, when we'll say things in our prayer, like, uh, Lord, uh, build a hedge of protection around something. They're like, what in the world is a hedge of protection? What are you talking about? Or when you hear somebody talk about, you know, their quiet time. How was your quiet time or my quiet time? And you think, well, isn't it a quiet time when you misbehave when you were a kid and they put you in a corner? They take your device away? What, what are you talking about, your quiet time? Or uh, you're in a prayer circle, you know, in your small group and, and somebody says, um, I have an unspoken. And everyone's like, oh, okay. And they pray for your unspoken. People are like, what in the world? If you haven't grown up in these circles, you might be like, this stuff is a little bit weird. Or maybe it's just uh, theological words that you're hearing. You know, I don't know what in these w the world this, these words mean. Sanctification or, you know, regeneration or whatever it might be. You know, we can use a lot of times some insider language that outsiders or people that didn't grow up in the church don't really know what we're talking about, which is why I, I attempt as much as I can 
to avoid as much of that Christianese, or at least explain it to you when I do use one of those words, and I would encourage you to do the same. And the reason I bring all of this up is because uh, I'm giving you free uh, corny Christian t-shirts today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because one of those phrases that is very Christianese, very insider, is actually the subject of our sermon today. And the question that that we're going to wrestle with is, what does it mean to be born again? You ever hear this phrase? Of course you have. If you grew up in the Christian circles, you probably know that phrase, you know, might run into somebody in Wilmington. If somebody that is didn't grow up in a Christian church or anything like that, and you say, you go up to them and say, hey, are you born again? Or, hey, I'm a born-againer. I'm a born-again Christian. They might look at you in Wilmington 2023 a little bit weird. That might be a little standoffish, like, whoa, 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 you know, ease up. You're in my personal space here. Uh, born-againer, okay, whoa. Some people might have no idea what you're talking about, what that means. Other people might have some connotation about what that means. Many people out there, if you went up and you say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm born-again Christian, they, they might think of you as a type of Christian, you know, a, a sort of a brand of Christian with that phrase. You know, uh, born-againers are those like really extreme Christians. They're those, you know, Christians that really need some kind of emotional experience or maybe it's a, the kind of person that had a really dramatic thing happen in, in their life. You know, maybe it was somebody that got in a lot of trouble. Maybe they were addicted or they dealt with, you know, a, they were a criminal or they were desperate in their life. And so, you know, they had this emotional experience. Or maybe it's somebody that thinks, oh, you know, those born-again people, those are the types of Christians that need a lot of, like, moral structure in their life. They need people, you know, religion telling them what to do and how to live. You know, they need that kind of moral structure in their life. These are just some of the things you probably, the average person would think about being born again. Now, what I want to do is sort of challenge that notion a bit this morning. Because 1970s bead-wearing, you know, Jesus people didn't invent the word or the phrase born again. Did you know that? Guess who invented the word or the phrase, rather, born again? Jesus did, (laughs) okay? In fact, we're going to encounter it in our text that we're going to look at this morning. What John talks about, what Jesus shares is, what does it mean to be born again? It's his phrase, and so we want to do a little bit of redemptive work of this phrase, this important theological phrase, and I'm going to tell you three truths about what it means to be born again from our text today, okay? So the first one is this. What does it mean to be born again? Well, first of all, we're going to see that it's a required new status. It's a required new status. Look at our text, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, then he goes on, these are the same people who are born of God, right? So this is our idea, born of God or born again, it's the same thing. What is John saying? Well, John's saying that the world didn't receive him, but there were some who did. And those who did are the same people who believed in his name, and those same people that believed in his name are the same people that are born again. Do you see the tight connection that John makes between those phrases? So John is saying there's, not, there's no middle ground. There's not, you know, types of Christians, and some of those are born again. What he's saying is, Either you did not receive him, you rejected him, and you're not born again, or you did receive him, and you are born again. 
Do you see that? There's no middle ground with this. It is one or the other. See, being born again, therefore, is not some, something just for those extreme people. You know, that extreme brand of Christian out there, or those really emotional Christians out there. It's not just for the people that need a tightened up moral structure out there. It's for everyone. And a case study for this is a gentleman named Nicodemus that we discover in just two chapters later. So either turn your Bible or just look to the other side of your Bible and go to chapter three of the same book, because we're gonna talk a little bit about Nicodemus, because Nicodemus has a conversation with Jesus one evening that he would never forget the rest of his life. And it's recorded here in chapter three. Now, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was about as pulled together, about as successful and respected as you could get in that day and age in Israel. He was a religious teacher, he was a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, both inside scripture and outside of scripture and other writings. We know that Nicodemus was incredibly well admired. He was well respected in his day. He was above reproach. Now we have come to think about Pharisees, you know, in this side of uh, the New Testament as like, you know, they're the bad guys or the people that, you know, crucified Jesus. And certainly they were part of that. But you have to understand the Pharisees and particularly Nicodemus, their reputation was, was admirable. They were admired in the society. Nicodemus was considered thoughtful, wise, open-minded. I mean, this is, this is about as good as you're going to get with Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Rabbi, which is a, a title, a respected title, meaning teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. He gives Jesus a compliment. He says some really true things about Jesus. And you would think that Jesus would say, you know, well, that was really kind of you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've heard great things about you too, Nico. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's what we do. This is the social contract we have. Somebody says something nice about you, you say something nice about them. Jesus wasn't about those kinds of things. Jesus kind of like right to the, like right, cuts right to the chase. Verse three, he says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Whew, okay, pleasantries over. Now right for the jugular. Let's get to it, Nico. What's your problem? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, nothing that you have ever accomplished, nothing about your family name, nothing about your pedigree or your positions that you hold count spiritually or eternally. Nicodemus, you are on square one. You are at the starting line with the rest of those sinners out there. That's what he's saying to him. You must be born again. Yeah, I've heard people say, well, oh, you know, born again. That's, that's for those people who got religious. Nicodemus was religious. In fact, he was the most religious. Nicodemus had more religion and more morality than any of us in this room. He took praying more seriously than you. He took scripture memory more serious than you. He took giving uh, to, to, you know, to the temple, to the poor more seriously than you did. And this is a man that was, had moral rigor all around him. 
See, born again, being born again isn't a call into more religion or more moral structure. If so, Jesus wouldn't have said that to him. It was about something else completely. So look at what John says about being born again. Back in our text in John 1, he said that it doesn't come from natural descent. It doesn't come from human decision or husband's will. What's he saying? He's saying that your family name, and by the way, back then your family name, your lineage was really important back in these days in Israel. In the human decisions, accolades, titles you receive from religious organizations, those were really essential back then. He says, none of that really matters. See, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, John's words to us in John 1, are an incredible challenge to the notion that getting into the kingdom of God, that is salvation, or getting to heaven, is some kind, somehow equated to birthright, or some kind how equated to religion, or moral structure, or social status. Do you remember on the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe you recall hearing some of the things that Jesus said. One of them is from Matthew 5.20, where he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your mor- morality, your purity surpasses that of even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Who's he talking about? He's talking about people like Nicodemus. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, we're in bad shape, aren't we, if that's the case? See, Jesus is making a point that it's not more morality or more religion that gets you to heaven. There's a principle at play here that Jesus is, is saying. And the principle is this, if it's true for the greatest, it's true for all. If it's true for the greatest, it's true for all. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. Sometimes like high school uh, basketball players, you know, will sort of scoff at the idea of having to practice a jump shot or like their foul shot, right? I don't need to practice that. Except for the fact that like one of the greatest shooters of all time, Steph Curry, practices hours and hours and hours standing at the foul line just shooting shots or practicing his jump shot. See, if it's true for Steph Curry, then it's true for you if you're a high school basketball player. You see what what I'm saying? If it's true for Nicodemus, that no matter what his moral pedigree was, that even he is in top dead center, even he is square one, even he needs to be born again, then it's true for all the rest of us too. We all need it. It's required for all. Nicodemus thought his eternal status was all he needed to make him secure. Jesus said, your sin problem is worse than you thought. See, you think committing the sin of murder is just when you physically kill someone, but I tell you, Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you've committed murder. You think it's just infidelity when you have an affair with someone. I tell you, you've committed adultery when you lust in your heart. You think all you have to do is love your neighbor, that is my own Jewish people. I say you have to even love your enemies. See, what Jesus was always doing is pointing out that if it's true for the greatest, it's true for all of us. So I hope at this point, I've dispelled any notion that being born again is for that class of Christians, for those hippie people over there, those people that can't get it all together. Listen, the reality is none of us can get it all together. That's why every one of us need to be born again. We need this status, all right? That's the first thing. The second thing we learn, it's a new 
radical identity. It's a new radical identity. Again, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They say, well, hold on, Nate. I mean, aren't all of us children of God? I mean, isn't everybody, no matter what religion or background or morality, aren't we all children of God? This is a question. It's a good question to ask. And maybe in some sense, uh, you might remember what uh, the Apostle Paul said in Athens, Athens when he said, um, we are all God's offspring, right? We are all God's offspring. Now, what he meant by that is we, are all, uh, we all come from God. He is the creator of all, all, you know, every living being. The breath in our lungs is from our creator, right? It's what we looked at two weeks ago. Jesus as the logos, the divine creator of all things, See, what, what the Bible says is that while we're all creatures or creations of God, we're not all children of God. Children of God is a special, special designation, and here we see it. What does John say? To all who believe, he gives the what? The right to become children of God. This word right in the Greek is a word that means authority. This is the same word that would be used in a legal courtroom at the time. For a judge to declare a verdict, to confer some status or identity to someone. This is the same word. What John is saying is that when we receive Jesus, when we believe in his name, in the eternal, the, the, the heavenly courtroom, the, God the Father declares that we are children of God. We, he confers this new status, this new identity on us as adopted sons and daughters, as it were. Isn't that amazing? Let me just stop preaching for a moment and just like think about that for a second. That the truest, most foundational, the the most glorious thing about you, if you know Christ, is that you are a son or daughter of God Almighty. I mean, that that is just mind-blowing. We can stop the sermon on that and just meditate on that the rest of the time. God Almighty calls us his children. You know, that's a status that no one can ever take away from you. If you have the the identity as a child of God, a son or daughter of God, no one can ever steal that from you. It, It can never drift away from you. You will have that status, that identity forever and ever. And that gives us the kind of security and the kind of significance, the kind of stability that our identities need in this world. Because the identities that we have in this world are very unstable, very shifting. They, they are not lasting. They're very shaky and insecure. Uh, let me give you an example. So there's some young people out there. Some of you are athletes who consider yourselves an athlete. If you're young and you're an athlete, that might feel to you in this phase of your life as the most essential, most important piece of your identity. I remember that feeling when I was an athlete one day, back in the day. I love wearing my varsity jacket around. That was who I was. I'm an athlete. You know, I loved performing on the field or on the mat as a wrestler. I love people cheering for me. I love being successful, dominating on the mat. This is an important part of my identity. This is who I was. Here's a problem with an identity like that. It doesn't take much much to mess with it. It doesn't take much for that to to be shaky. Maybe you have an injury 
and suddenly you're on the bench and everybody else is out in the field. Everybody else is being cheered for and you're just sitting there and everyone kind of looks right past you. Or maybe what happened to me when I was a, a senior a wrestler, as a wrestler, I was performing well, but I was at a weight class where there were two just really great wrestlers on my team and I had to wrestle off with one of them and one of them beat me for the starting position my senior year. And I had to be on JV for a portion of my senior year sitting on the bench as the other guy was on the mat. Suddenly this identity that I built just crushed, crumbled. Who am I now? It's shaky. Even in the best case scenario of you're an athlete, maybe you get a scholarship, maybe you go on to pros. Maybe you have a 10-year, 15-year career at most, probably. But what happens inevitably? Time, age catches up with you. People that are much younger than you just outperforming you. You lose your spot to a younger person. Your body breaks down. And at some point at the end of your career, you say, who am I now? This happens all the time to athletes. Who am I now that I'm not the baseball player guy or the track and field girl? Who am I now? See, identities are very shaky. This is true for our looks. Maybe you've been told your whole life, oh, you're so handsome. Oh, you're so beautiful. And that is the identity that you carry around with you. This is who I am. I'm the good looking person. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the people, person that gets the attention from the boys or the girls. This is your identity. Of course, the, the problem with that is one, there's always someone better looking than you. But two, time begins to catch up with that, Right? And it gets, takes longer and longer and becomes more and more expensive and more and more impossible to keep up with that identity. As David Foster Wallace once famously said about what happens if, you, if your identity is in your beauty, your physical beauty, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Well, that's something to put on your Christmas card this year. But he's right, isn't it? And you can take that for anything, anything that becomes an identity in this world, no matter what it is. Even the most seemingly stable identities, husband, father, wife, mom, manager, executive. When crisis hits, when the unexpected comes, when conflict or competition comes or technology comes or retirement or or death, illness visits us, These identities prove to be just as fleeting and insecure as any of the other ones. Why is it that we have uh, phrases that we all understand in this world, like desperate housewives or midlife crisis or people who retire from long careers and then go into a deep depression? Why? Because we know that this is a problem in our world, that we don't have an identity. We're looking for a title or a corner office to give us our identity. Jesus offers the only identity that isn't based on performance, that isn't based on economy or on time or accolades or the ups and downs of life. He gives us an identity, the right, the legal identity as children of God, and no one can ever take that away from you. Do you have this kind of security? You may say, well, I'm already a Christian. Okay, but functionally, functionally, what is your identity? What do you actually, you say, oh, I'm a Christian, but what do you actually have at your core of your identity? What if it got taken away from you would crush you? What if suddenly if you didn't have it would make you go into a depression or anxiety 
or fear or dread because that's your functional identity. Do you have security no matter what your circumstances, no matter how the world treats you? This is an identity as a child of God. So let's thirdly look then that our identity, our new identity is received. It's a received new life. That's what it means to be born again. So we've seen the new birth is a required status. No one sees the kingdom of God without it. We've seen that it's a radical new identity as a child of God as at our core of who we are. The question now around this idea of new birth or being born again is how do I get it? Good question, right? We've talked about it this whole time. Well, how do I actually get it? This is the same question that Nicodemus was wrestling with when Jesus says to him, hey, you must be born again. He's saying, wait a second, I'm old. How can I be born again, whether you're old or not? Like, you understand the impossible nature of this. I can't, he even says, I can't like, you know, go back into my mother's womb, can I? Of course not. So how exactly does this work, he says. This problem that he's trying to work out reveals a faulty premise at his core. And the faulty premise that Nicodemus had at his core was this. My status, my identity, my eternal life must be earned. Must be earned. But what does John say here in our text? John 12. To all who did receive him, that is, receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right. He gave it to him. Now, let me ask you a question. Go back to your first birth, you know, your physical birth. You remember that? Of course you don't remember. We don't. Of course we don't. But imagine yourself there, you know, you, you newborn little baby. Ask yourself this question. How much, how much responsibility did you have for your birth? What did you do to contribute to that birth? Were you in the womb, you know, doing your push-ups? Diamonds. Got to work out. Get ready for this. No. We're in there writing your plan, you know? Okay, step one, here's what I'm gonna do, step two. No? How much did you contribute? Zero. You didn't contribute to it at all. Your mama contributed to it. Amen? Your mama did all the work. It was her sacrifices for those nine months. It was her not being able to tie her shoe in the third trimester. It was her having morning sickness. It was her pain, her struggle, her work that birthed you, right? It was her effort. Okay, let's go to our second birth then, our spiritual birth. How much effort? What was your responsibility? What did you do to get that second birth? Same answer. Zero. We didn't do it. We we received it. How did we get it? Because of the work of Jesus. It was Jesus' work for those three years in, on this planet. It was Jesus leaving the glory of heaven and coming down that first Christmas to be born in a stable. It was him and his painful labor and toil as a poor manual labor. It was him who struggled. It was him who worked ultimately the work on the cross to the breaking point of death that gave us life. See, Jesus Worked. So in other words, the correct premise in order to receive 
Jesus Christ, in order to be born again, it starts with this premise that my status, my identity, my eternity must be received, not earned. Received, not earned. Simply by receiving Jesus' gift of life, that's what it means to believe in his name, right? to believe in the person, the work of Christ, this is what it means. This is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus, you know, in that most famous scripture. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus when Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? What Jesus didn't say is, okay, listen, you need to 10X your prayer life. You need to double up your financial contributions to the temple, Nicodemus. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, get off your faulty premise. Get on the right premise. Salvation, eternity is received, not earned. This is the only way. So as we close this time together, let me just ask you the question, what are we doing here exactly? What are you doing here? Why are we here? Are we here to check the box off? This is what we're supposed to do because we you know, go to church. That's what good people do, moral people do. We sing these songs. We give these, this money. We say this Christianese to one another. What are we doing here? What is this about? What is our premise? Do we have the premise of Nicodemus, that this is where earning credit Or is this a response to a received gift of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior? If you are born again, you've received a gift. And so our worship is a response, not earning credit. In the same way, that also means that the most important thing about you is your identity in Jesus Christ. It means that the most important thing about Christmas is in the presence or the lights or singing Christmas carols, as wonderful as those things are, it's about receiving the gift of Christmas. And so let me just challenge you as we close this time. Have you received that gift? Are you still on the premise like Nicodemus? You're still trying to earn it. Or have you received it? Jesus would say to you, you must be born again. Let's pray. And as we close our time here today, in the word, as we prepare our heart to sing again this song as a response. May you just do business with the Lord. Maybe you're realizing today that you've been building. You've been building on a premise that is a faulty premise. You've been trying to build a ladder to heaven rung by rung through your moral effort or your goodness or your family name. May today be the day that you deconstruct that premise and set up a new foundation, a new premise as a received gift of Jesus. And if that's you today, maybe you can just essentially say John 3.16 in your heart, but personalize it for you, that God so loved me that he sent the Savior into the world to die for me that if I believe in him, I will not perish. I will not die that second death, but I will have eternal life. If you believe that in your heart, you confess that. He gives you the right to be called a child of God forever.
If that's you today, boy, do not leave this place until you make sure you know that's true for you. Talk to me, talk to one of the pastors, pray with someone down front after the service. We wanna be able to help you in that journey. Lord, may we all firmly place our identity as being a child of the almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.